Please be seated. Well, one of the rules in our household this time of year is, is that if any one of us is home, then the Christmas tree lights must be on. It's one of my favorite Christmas traditions, the smell that the Christmas tree brings into the house, the twinkling lights, the ornaments adorning the branches. There is this certain magical feeling that the Christmas tree induces. However, just as the threshold for appropriateness for the appearance of Christmas decorations is marked by Thanksgiving, somehow the Christmas tree quickly loses its magic once New Year's Day arrives. And so we have this one more week in the space between Christmas and New Year's Day to enjoy our tree. Merry Christmas. Our scripture passage for this morning is the gospel selection from today's readings in the Revised Common Lectionary. And and it is at first, well, not so Christmassy. However, uh, the scripture, it serves as a bookend to Luke's birth narrative and concludes Jesus' life as a child in the gospel. And and as we turn from chapter 2 into chapter 3, we will find Jesus about to be baptized by John the Baptist as he begins ministry. But but today, here we are in chapter 2, appropriately remaining in the space between Christmas and the launch of Jesus' adult ministry. And so I invite you to open the Bibles that you've brought with you from home or your pew Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 41 through 52. And so just a few verses after the birth of Jesus, we read, Now every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. And when the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. And then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. Jesus said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he had said to them. And then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our story this morning... We find Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And and after this seven-day festival has concluded, they begin the journey home only to discover their little boy is missing. 
And they ultimately find Jesus sitting in the temple among the teachers and and listening and amazing all of those people around him at his knowledge of Scripture. Now, when they find him, Luke doesn't share with us exactly how Mary gets Jesus' attention, whether she threw her arms around him or grabbed him by the elbow. But from the text, child, why have you treated us this way? We might guess it was the latter. In sharing this story, Luke establishes with his audience that that Mary and Joseph are good, God-honoring parents. This this is not a story about parents who forget their child, but, but rather, first, a story about the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph and their obedience to Jewish law. You see, in the preceding verses between the birth narrative and today's scripture, we read that that Jesus is circumcised according to the law, that Mary visits the temple for the rites of purification after birth according to the law, and that they dedicate their infant son, Jesus, their firstborn son, at the temple according to the law. And then again, here's this family according to the law, observing the Passover festival. And to do this at the temple in Jerusalem, they travel from Nazareth, a journey of about 90 miles. We're looking at five to six days. And and if you were to look at a map, you'll notice that as the crow flies, it's only about a 60-mile distance, but that that route would have taken them through Samaria, the land of enemies of the people of Israel. And, And so the more likely route would have been first to travel west, from Nazareth to the Jordan River and taken the Jordan Way down to the Judean Hills and then up into Jerusalem. Luke wants his audience to know that Mary and Joseph are, by all accounts, and according to the social norms of the day, good and faithful Jews. And yet, what then does that make Jesus as he responds his mother Mary? A disobedient, disrespectful child? I'll read Jesus' response again in just a moment, but, but consider that chronologically these are the first words that we hear Jesus speak in any of the Gospels. In no other Gospel, in fact, do we hear Christ the child speak. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Luke goes on to conclude the section later, saying that, that Jesus was obedient. He goes on to say that he increases in human and divine favor. What then is going on here in Jesus' reply? In this short interaction, Jesus establishes the pattern for his ministry on earth and sets for us a template by which we are to measure our own choices. As New Testament professor Joel Green puts it, Jesus in the temple is is not merely there as a curious bystander or even participant, but Jesus is in the the temple 
by divine compulsion. Jesus says, I must be in my Father's house. In other words, my Father has compelled me to be here. I know that I'm supposed to travel home with Mary and Joseph, and and yet my Father's purposes have me here. We will see this again and again throughout the Gospels. In Christ's ministry, it will will be one that is aligned with God's purposes irrespective of the social norms of the day. It's a pattern that we'll see as Jesus teaches in his three-year ministry later in life, a ministry full of teachings that rub up against the social norms and contemporary interpretations of the law. Patrick shared a compelling quote last week saying that that those in power want things to stay the same and that those at the bottom are the ones who welcome change. Change makes those of us at the top very uncomfortable. Jesus' ministry is one of change, and the change that Jesus preaches is a change that will align the world with the kingdom of God. And yet, they are so uncomfortable by it that they crucify him for it. It's interesting to me that that Jesus' statements, his questions in the temple, they're met with wonder and admiration. My sense is that these are the same teachings that, that lead later to his condemnation. Jesus as child prodigy? Amazing. Jesus as an adult teacher, as a change agent, is crucifiable. There's a power dynamic at play here. Jesus the child is is not seen as a threat in his teaching because he can't change anything yet. A child does not hold any position of power, but Jesus the teacher. Jesus the teacher possesses the cultural leverage to bring about a change, to begin a movement. Jesus the teacher is a threat. Now, not only does this passage foreshadow the way in which God's purposes will clash with the world that we live in, but in doing so, it provides a pattern for which we are to measure our own choices. Have you ever sensed that God was calling you in a particular direction? Have you been resistant to that calling? Why? As I look at the pattern of my own life, I know that one of the reasons is discomfort. And I wonder if sometimes the notion that discomfort awaits us isn't a signal that we are actually moving in the right direction, in the direction that God has laid out for us. You see, friends, because as the church, as followers of Christ, we are called to align ourselves daily with God's purposes. And this will, this will, not may, this will compete with societal norms and the values that we hold on to dearly. Are you familiar with the term competing values? It is this this reality that that just because 
two concepts, two ethics, two values are worthy, it does not mean that they can coexist. In the case of our story this morning, Jesus rubs up against the value of family and being where mom and dad tell him to be, of being obedient. And yet Jesus chooses to align himself with God's purposes, with his father, to be where God wants him to be. Friends, we can expect that a life of faith will be a life navigating competing values. It will be a life of saying no so that we can say yes to the purposes of God. Paul's teaching that Patrick read for us just moments ago from Colossians is an example of this exactly. And it's one that you will often hear read at weddings. Paul writes, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Paul writes, put on love. In the NRSV, in the translation that Patrick read for us today, we read it as clothe yourselves in kindness and humility. Clothe yourselves in love. I love Paul's word choice there. To clothe ourselves in love because there is in that implied intentionality that there is a choice which is contrary to the social narrative that we fall in and out of love with one another. Paul is communicating that the way that we treat each other both in our friend relations and in our uh, romantic relationships, it's a choice. It's a conscious choice that we make, but that competes with our romanticized notion of what it means to be in love. It conflicts with this idolized version of romantic love. And so, friends, let us not be shocked when our obedience to God pulls us in directions that rub others the wrong way. But this isn't bad news. Several years ago, Amy and I were picking out our Christmas tree, and, and we struck up a conversation with the gentleman that was running the operation. And for some reason, he shared with us one of the most common questions that people ask him. Can you guess what it was? He said every year, people ask him, if we take this tree home and plant it in the ground, will it grow? By your laughter, I'm guessing you know the answer. The answer is, of course, no. You see, the tree is dead. It, it has been cut off from its life source, from the roots which bring it nourishment. This incredible and cherished custom that we have is just that. It is a custom, it is a thing of our own invention, and it will not sustain life. It will, as all things of this world of human making, wither and die. But our lives of faith, of aligning ourselves with God's purposes, are an opportunity to root our lives firmly in the eternal by aligning our wills with the will of God. 
where they will grow eternally in hope, eternally in love, and eternally with God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen, and Merry Christmas.